Friends, on January 3rd of this year, President Donald Trump set the internet ablaze with his Twitter account. Now, while the president has always been very provocative, having a bantering style on social media, uh, this particular sentence on Twitter immediately lit up the news wires around the world for the way in which it mentioned nuclear weapons. Apparently, the dictator of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, was bragging to newspapers and reporters in that country about his country's nuclear capabilities and his willingness to stand up to the United States. Well, it was reported that Kim Jong-un apparently declared that his nuclear button is on his desk at all times. Well, that was a very bold, a very provocative statement. And so President Trump replied on Twitter with his own very bold statement. It was Tuesday, January 3rd of this year, on our president unleashed this tweet saying, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un just stated that the nuclear button is on his desk at all times. Will someone from his depleted and food-starved regime please inform him that I too have a nuclear button, but it is much bigger and more powerful one than his and my button works. Now friends, as you might imagine, no sooner had the president pushed send on that tweet that a firestorm of discussion just erupted across the horizon, not only in this country, but really in countries all around the globe. Now, of course, some people immediately began to poke fun at President Trump. They wanted to point out to him that the nuclear protocols of the United States are actually housed in a special briefcase that actually has a nickname. It's called the football. So it's actually held in a briefcase in our country. It's not on the president's desk with a giant red button. But of course, many people did in fact take this tweet very seriously. And they hoped, and many were even praying, that this strong rhetoric between the US and North Korea would not escalate any further into any kind of armed conflict. And they certainly hoped that this would not lead to an all out war. You know, family, for as much as average Americans want to avoid war, the hard truth is that war has been a part of our nation's story since the very beginning. In fact, I read a little statistic this week that was published in 2011. Some historians reported that the United States of America has participated in some kind of warfare for 214 of America's 235 years of existence. Let that soak in for a minute. America has been involved in wars for 214 of her 235 years of existence. So Christians, what should we think about the subject of war? Should Bible-believing Christians be pro-war? Or should we be anti-war? Or should we be something else? If we had the opportunity to sit down and have a coffee with Jesus, what would he want to say to us about this sensitive subject? Well, family, this morning as we embark on part two of this special worldview series that I've entitled, What Would Jesus Say? I want us today to take a closer look at the subject of war through the lens 
of sacred scripture in hopes that all of us will be a little better prepared to think and talk and respond to this subject with some biblical clarity and some conviction. Family, with that as our introduction, now I want to help us step through this topic of war today by using four helpful headings. We want to talk about war today, but I want to do so with you by using four helpful headings. First of all, this morning we're going to talk about some questionable views of war. Then secondly, we're going to talk about some biblical perspectives about war. Thirdly, we're going to talk about the classic criteria for a justified war. And then we'll conclude today with some moral restrictions on a just war. So let's begin this morning, family, talking about number one, if you're taking some notes, let's start here with this category, questionable views on war. Questionable views on war. Now, Christians, any time that we want to take a deeper look into a topic, whether that topic would be controversial or not, if we want to consider any topic through the lens of a Christian worldview, well, one of the very first things that you and I need to do is make sure that we are defining our terms. Defining our terms. So what do we mean exactly when we use the word war? Well, in your notes, I gave you this great little definition that was put out in a little uh, article in the ESV Study Bible. This definition I thought was very clear and very good. What is war? War is a large-scale armed conflict between countries or between groups within a country aimed at changing or dividing established government. I thought that was a very clear, I thought that was a good basic definition. You know, throughout history, many wars have taken place for all kinds of reasons. Wars have happened for economic reasons. They have happened for political reasons. Wars have happened for religious reasons, ethnic reasons, and even selfish reasons like conquest or plunder. Now, down through the centuries, Christianity, Christianity has recognized three different responses or three different perspectives on this issue of war. And those three perspectives are pacifism, corrupt wars, and just wars. Now, a little later in this message, we're going to talk about what is a just war or a justified war. We're going to talk about some of the important components that go into having a justifiable war. But right now, family, let's just take a couple minutes. Let's consider those first two perspectives, which I'm calling questionable perspectives on war. And those questionable perspectives are pacifism and corrupt Wars. So let's talk about them. Let's start by thinking a little bit about pacifism. The word pacifism comes from a root word which means to pacify. That word means to, to make peace. It means to choose quietness. It means to choose non-hostility. So for the person who subscribes to pacifism, this is a person who is opposed to the use of force. They are especially opposed to the use of force when it comes to the topic of war. Now, since the second and third centuries, some Christians have advocated for a position of pacifism. Some Christians have advocated for this position of total nonviolence. 
And they've done so based on some of the teachings of Jesus. So I want you to open your Bible with me now to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, which as you know from Matthew 5 to 7, is Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. So I'd like to read for us this morning Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 and 39. And then we're going to skip back and look at one more verse also in chapter 5. But let's go to Matthew 5, verse 38. If you have your Bible, please look with me. Jesus is the speaker. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Would you look back with me right in this same chapter? We're still in the Sermon on the Mount. Would you turn back with me in chapter 5? Look back to verse 9 also. This is, of course, you remember the Beatitudes. This is the very beginning, the opening section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 9, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Christian friends, for those who would hold to pacifism, they believe that since Jesus called for non-retaliation, they believe that since Jesus taught non-retaliation, and even love of one's enemies, they would say that it is wrong for a Christian to participate in a war. They would say it's wrong because there's violence, there's weapons, there's killing of the enemy. Now, down through Christian history, there have been a number of groups who have held a pacifistic position. The Anabaptists, the Anabaptists, the Quakers the Mennonites, and even Seventh-day Adventists have been very consistent in their practice of pacifism. They say that violence is never the way forward. They say military force shows a lack of trust in God. They say violence only promotes more violence. And they say that at least some form of pacifism ought to be practiced by Christians. Now, friends, here in a few moments, I'm going to show you from the Scriptures why I believe that is a very questionable viewpoint. But before we do that, family, I want to mention one more view that is quite questionable. And that is the second view that we will call corrupt and crusading wars. Corrupt and crusading wars. Now, a few minutes ago, I mentioned that during the long history of this planet, there have been many reasons why wars have been fought, right? Economic reasons, political reasons, ethnic reasons. War is never a pleasant thing. And we would hope, we would hope that if war becomes necessary, we would hope, wouldn't we, that it would at least be for a valid reason, a good reason, a morally justifiable reason. Well, that doesn't always happen, does it? Some wars can only be categorized as corrupt, corrupt wars. A corrupt war happens when the ultimate purpose of that war is for an unrighteous reason, an evil reason, like conquest or, or plundering a nation. Think about this with me from your history books, Hitler and his Nazis. When Hitler's Nazis were doing their blitzkrieg across Europe, they were wanting to dominate. They wanted to dominate. They wanted to see German supremacy rule the world. And that was certainly corrupt aggression on their part. Sometimes nations, 
attack other nations for all kind of bad reasons. They want to take their land. They want to acquire their natural resources. Maybe they even want to bring another people group into subjection. And so those are some terrible reasons for a war. And that is why we would call that a corrupt war. And likewise, family, is the crusade. The crusade. Well, what is a crusade? Well, we're not talking about what Billy Graham did in the early 20th century. No, when we talk about a crusade, in its original meaning, a crusade is a war that is religious-based. It is a war that starts out of a religious authority. It is, it is a war that happens for religious reasons. Let's be real honest. In the history of Christianity, one of the blackest eyes that we as Christians have ever suffered happened in the Middle Ages. It happened in the year 1095 when Pope Urban II commanded his followers to undertake a holy war against the Muslims, the Muslims who were currently occupying Jerusalem and the Holy Land. For nearly 200 years, there were crusading wars taking place as all kinds of European Christians left Europe and marched down and were attacking and killing and warring Muslims there in Israel in the surrounding regions. And they were claiming to do all of it in the name of God. In a crusade war, when it is a religious war for religious reasons and the religious authority has said, we are going to do this battle in the name of God. When a crusade happens, there are no compromises. There are no prisoners being spared. There are no limits being put on what force can be used. It sends soldiers into battle with zeal and it never surrenders. The crusade never surrenders so long as those Pagans exist. So, family, the Christian crusade. The crusade is another example of a skewed view of war. Nowhere in the New Testament are you and I ever commanded to kill the pagans and to expand Christianity by force. In fact, Jesus said the opposite, didn't he? Look in your notes there in John 18, 36. In his famous conversation with Pilate, remember when Jesus said this? My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. So friends, here's what we're saying in summary. What we're saying is that both pacifism and those corrupt and crusading wars, both of them have it wrong. They are both extreme positions on either side of the spectrum. They don't line up with what we would call the classical Christian viewpoint. So what then is the classical Christian viewpoint? What is the classic Christian view when we take a look at the Bible on this subject? What valuable scriptures might Jesus want us to think about and consider as we look at this topic? Well, family, let's move to number two now. Number two, let's talk about biblical perspectives on war. Biblical perspectives on war number two. Now, as we make a careful study of the scriptures, friends, it becomes clear that yes, there can be, there can be some extremely wrong reasons, sinful reasons even, 
why people go to war. However, however, that doesn't mean that all wars are inherently sinful, wrong, or evil in the eyes of God. When we look at the biblical evidence, the broad picture that we get from the Bible is that it is possible to have a war be fought for good reasons or for just reasons. Here in a few minutes, we're going to talk about just war. But before we get to that, let's just quickly highlight here together a few biblical concepts, a few thoughts and concepts from God's Word that can help us understand that a just war is indeed possible. You know, as we study through the Old Testament Scriptures, beginning with the Old Testament, we see that there are many cases where it is actually God Himself who commanded the ancient Israelites to go to war. After the Exodus, remember, after the children of Israel come up out of Egypt, you remember God sent His ancient Israelites into battle. They had a giant war against the Canaanites, not only to bring judgment on the Canaanites for their wickedness, but also that the children of Israel might receive the promised land as their inheritance. Family, it's quite interesting. Deuteronomy chapter 20 is actually a really neat chapter. In Deuteronomy 20, God actually gives the armies of Israel rules of engagement. Rules of engagement when it comes to wars and how they are to conduct themselves as warriors. In addition, family, we see many times in the Old Testament where the children of Israel are going out for a war, going out for a battle, and we see that God helps them. God helps them defend themselves against enemy nations, and we often see God helps them to win the war and get the victory. So family, all that to say, we can't say, we can't say that God is inherently against war when He Himself, on so many occasions, commanded war, assisted in a war, and even gave some righteous regulations for a war. But let's move on. Let's talk about the New Testament, too, as we're thinking through these biblical concepts. The New Testament also has some insights for us to consider. One of the most important passages I have to mention today is Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, in the first four verses there, Scripture says it was God... God who ordained human governments to exist. And one of the important responsibilities given to human governments is what the Bible calls the power of the sword, or what you and I might more plainly call deadly force. God gives governments the power of the sword, or what we would call deadly force. Scripture teaches quite explicitly that governments are good when they stand up for justice, when they defend the innocent, when they protect what is good, when they punish those who are doing evil. According to the Bible, there in Romans 13, when the government uses deadly force in that way, when the government uses force to do what is good, to do what is just and right, the Bible says in those cases, government is actually acting as God's servant for your good. Now, friends, last Sunday morning in our message on guns, we learned together that the Bible does affirm the principle of self-defense. Well, I want you to think about this with me. 
if individual people have the right to protect themselves from harm, if individual people have the right to protect themselves, then surely whole countries of people should also be afforded the right to protect themselves. Look in your notes there. I gave you a great quote there from Dr. Wayne Grudem, who's a Ph.D. in theology. I really like Grudem's things. He's a great writer and a thinker. Grudem says this, quote, If a government is commanded by God to protect its citizens from the robber or the thief who comes from within a country, then certainly it also has the obligation to protect its citizens against thousands of murderers or thieves who come as an army from somewhere outside of that nation. Therefore, a nation has a moral obligation to defend itself against foreign attackers who would come and kill and conquer and subjugate the people in a nation. So here's what we're saying, friends. Wars can be good. Wars can be good. They can be necessary for governments to do. Why? To protect the innocent, to halt the spread of evil, and to stop and punish evildoers. Look in your notes. I gave you a great scripture from 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2.14. Peter says, under inspiration, that governments are sent by God to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So, Romans 13, 1 Peter 2. Very important texts for the Christian to consider in this topic. But that's not all. Let's think about John the Baptist and even Jesus for a moment. Both John the Baptist and Jesus in the Gospels had numerous interactions with many professional soldiers. What did they say to them? What did John the Baptist and Jesus say to them? Did they rebuke them? Did they scold them? Did they call them warmongers? Did they tell them they needed to resign their commissions and get out of the army immediately? No. No. In Luke 13, some of these Roman soldiers were having a conversation with John the Baptist, and they asked John the Baptist, and we, we, what should we do? And John said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats, or false accusations, and be content with your wages. So John the Baptist didn't demand that soldiers immediately quit their positions to get their hearts right with God. John simply encouraged these soldiers to use their military power rightly. Use their military power responsibly. And what about Jesus? Well, in Luke 7, in Luke 7, Jesus actually healed quite happily, the servant of a Roman centurion. And not only did Jesus heal this Roman soldier's servant, not only did Jesus do the healing, in that same text, Jesus actually said that this Roman soldier's faith was the strongest he had seen in all Israel. You remember that, when Jesus healed that servant from a distance, and the man, the Roman soldier, had said to Jesus, I believe you can heal him even from here. Just speak the word. And so Jesus commends this centurion for his great faith. In addition to that family, one of the twelve disciples that Jesus called into his group was a man named Simon the Zealot. This man, for the longest time, was an underground extremist of sorts. 
He was part of a group that was known as the Zealots. They were the Jewish Zealots. These were ultra-right-wing, hardcore nationalists in Israel. They would often fight violently against Roman occupation. In fact, in his book, Twelve Ordinary Men, Dr. John MacArthur describes the Zealots as red-hot patriots. These were Jewish radicals. These were extremists who believed that they were actually serving God's cause by assassinating Roman soldiers, killing political leaders or anyone else who stood against their views. This was a man that Jesus called as one of his disciples. Now, ultimately, he opened his heart to Christ, but he did become one of the apostles. So I'm saying all of that family to say that Jesus did not hate soldiers. Jesus did not act as if their participation in militaries and in wars would somehow permanently disqualify them from being in a relationship with him. Now, if we move forward in the timeline a little bit, we go from the time of Jesus to the time of the early church. The early church did not show hatred to soldiers. The church didn't show disdain to people who were soldiers and who ultimately believed the gospel. In fact, do you remember in Acts chapter 10? In Acts 10, God dispatched Peter through a vision to go and share the good news of Jesus with a man whose name was Cornelius. Guess what Cornelius' occupation was? He was a soldier. He was a Roman centurion. He was also a Gentile by birth. In that text there in Acts 10, not only did this man Cornelius, not only did he believe on Jesus, Scripture says he received the Holy Spirit, just like all the other believers did. This was a resounding confirmation to all the rest of the early church that God was now purposefully spreading the gospel even to Gentiles. Later on, you remember in the book of Acts, the great leader of the rest of the book of Acts, the central character of the remainder of the book of Acts is the Apostle Paul. And we read often in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul is imprisoned and he's being guarded by soldiers. And sometimes Paul is even chained to a soldier. And these soldiers were given charge to watching Paul, and Paul witnessed to them. Paul shared the good news of Jesus with these soldiers, and many of them, even in the Praetorian Guard, accepted Christ and were then added to local churches. So family, what are we saying? What we're saying is that when you do a fair survey of the Bible, it becomes clear not all wars are wrong. Now, could they be? Could they be? Well, yes, they could be. Depending on the circumstances, it could be an evil war driven by conquest. Maybe it's a corrupt war driven by plunder or money. It could be a wicked war bent on ethnic cleansing. It could be a, a faulty war as a religious crusade. It was never sanctioned truly by God. But wars are not always evil. If they were, then God would have said so explicitly. And God surely wouldn't have given us so many soldiering, military metaphors in the New Testament that he holds out to us to believe and use and embrace. Can I just remind you of a couple of these quickly? They're in your notes. 2 Timothy 2.3, the believer is called to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.11, 
says that our Christian life is a warfare, a warfare where our souls are engaged. Remember the end of Ephesians 6? We talk about the armor of God. There in Ephesians 6, the Christian's armor, it's modeled after the Roman soldier's outfit and his equipment. And family, how could we possibly forget the very end of the Bible itself? The end of the Bible, the end of all history, where King Jesus comes again to this planet riding on a white stallion with all the armies of heaven behind him, speaking words, Scripture says, that act like a sharp sword where he vanquishes his enemies and ushers in the eternal kingdom of God. So believers, what I've set out for you over the past few minutes is some of the classical position that the majority of Christians have held in regard to war. What we often call the justified war Position. Sometimes it's called just war theory. Look in your notes. I want you to see this quote from Dr. Daryl Bach of Dallas Seminary. He's a PhD in New Testament and research. Bach says this A justified war view is really a position between seeking war as a raw use of power and pacifism. Okay, so what he's saying there is this classic Christian view is really a middle position. It's a middle position between the raw use of abuse of power and pacifism. He goes on to say this, just war or justified war is used to protect the innocent, recover what has been wrongly taken, defend against a wrongful attack, and to punish evil. So friends, now that we've affirmed that there is such a thing as a just war, what is a good summary of some of the standards that go into making for a justified war? What are some of the standards that would go in to, to having a justified war, a war that would not be considered evil in the eyes of God? Well, let's talk about that now under number three. Number three, the classic criteria for a just war. We're going to talk now about some of the classic criteria for a just war. Now, friends, looking backwards into Christian history, it was in the 4th century, 4th century, that Christian scholars like Augustine and even Augustine's mentor, a man whose name was Ambrose, these were men who took the Bible's truths, the Bible's principles about war, and they begin to write, and they begin to assemble some of these classic standards or criteria about what goes into a just war. Now, those of you who own an ESV study Bible, at the very back of the ESV study Bible, your Bible has an appendix. And there in that appendix are a number of theological articles. And I'm going to make reference to one of those articles now that has to do with biblical ethics and in particular, under the subject of biblical ethics, is this topic of war. So as we think through the Bible's principles, if we think through the classical thinking that has been written down by Christian scholars over the years, I'm going to quickly just walk you through this very quickly, not very long. I want to show you these eight criteria that make for a justified war. The eight classic criteria that make for a justified war. So jot them down. The first one is a just cause. A just cause. Meaning, is there a good reason here? Is there a good reason for this war? Is it a morally justified reason? 
like self-defense. Is self-defense going on here? Is this fundamentally a defensive struggle? That's the first topic, the first category. The second one, competent authority. Competent authority. Is this an official war that's being carried out by government? Is this being led by government authorities? Scripture says that war is ultimately the job of governments, governments and nations. War should not be the job of little bands of renegades, little bands of vigilantes doing their own thing. Here's another category that goes into just wars that have been written down, the classic standards. Thirdly, comparative justice. Comparative justice. Here's what this means. If a country goes to war, it should be clear... It should be clear that what the enemy is doing is wrong, morally wrong, and thus the response of having a war is morally right. In other words, one country's moral evil is being met by the other country's justice. Here's number four, the right intention. The right intention. What's the intention of this war? Is the purpose of this war to protect what is right? to protect justice, and not to exact revenge, or to pillar, or to exploit resources. The intention should be for something positive, and not just to destroy lives. Here's the next one, last resort. Last resort, before the war begins, have all the reasonable measures of diplomacy been exhausted? Have these countries worked hard? Have they done everything they could do, every available means, to try to avoid warfare. Here's the next one, probability of success. Probability of success. Jesus in Luke 14 talked about kings counting the cost before going to war. So is there a reasonable expectation that this war can be won? I mean, if we're going to go to war, and if the reasons are right, can we win? Can we win this war? Can we accomplish the good that we're setting out to do? Here's the next one. Proportionality of projected results. Proportionality of projected results. In other words, if this war unfolds, will the end results be good? And not only good, but will they be greater in proportion when compared to all the death and destruction that's going to happen because of this war. Okay? So in other words, this this, uh, concept has the idea of how we used to say it back in the country, is the juice worth the squeeze? Is the juice worth the squeeze? Here's the last one, the right spirit. A classic category, thinking about just war, right spirit. If we're going to be forced... To undertake a war, is it happening with the right spirit? Is it with a spirit of reluctance? Is it with a spirit of even sorrow of heart? Are we sorry that it came to this? Are we sorry and feel a sense of sorrow that so many people are probably going to lose their lives? We shouldn't be delighting in war. We shouldn't be rejoicing in war. But we should be sad that it ultimately came to this. Now, even with those quality criteria, family, there still is some morality going on here. There's still a moral issue here for how this war, if a war is justified, if you can say the reasoning and the intentions and all those things are right, there's still a moral component. 
that has to be thought about here. Why? Because this battle is not being fought by Terminators. All right, this battle is not being fought by a bunch of robots. The battle's not being fought by a bunch of machines where we sit behind all the screens. No. Wars are fought with people. People are out there. Soldiers, men and women, are out there putting their lives on the line. And so down through the ages, not only have there been these discussions about what makes for a just war, there have also been a few little categories about some moral guidelines. There needs to be some moral guidelines here because people are involved. And I want to share these with you. Almost all of these, of course, are rooted in the biblical Christian worldview. The biblical Christian worldview that argues for the sanctity of life, the value of life. So can I give you these moral restrictions in a just war? There's just four of them. The first one is the proportional use of force. Look, if force is going to be used in a war, the ultimate goal is to defeat the enemy, not necessarily annihilate the enemy. And there's a difference. Okay? If force is going to be used, the goal is to defeat the enemy, not annihilate the enemy. And this is where the, the debates, the discussions, this is where the issue of nuclear weapons starts to get most hotly debated. If a country fires a nuclear weapon into another country, the results typically are not just victory over one's enemy, but a total extermination of that enemy. And sadly, many civilians will lose their lives too. So this is where nuclear weapons is a huge discussion, and it's its own topic, really, because there's so much going on there. So the morality of war has to include this discussion about proportional use of force. And our government does this all the time. What happened over here in the foreign country? Well, how are we going to respond? Maybe we'll shoot missiles. Are we going to put boots on the ground? Are we going to send planes, tanks, armies? What is the proportion? Why does that happen? Because of this. This is what we're talking about. Proportional use of force. Here's the next one. Again, a moral guideline. Secondly, protecting non-combatants. During a war, common sense, common decency says only the soldiers fight. Steps ought to be taken as much as possible to ensure that ordinary citizens, all the other non-combatants, should be shielded from harm. Okay, men that are not soldiers and women and children, we're not, we're not trying to get them killed. So protecting non-combatants, that's a moral thing, a moral uh, value that is brought to this discussion. Thirdly, avoiding evil treatment. Avoiding evil treatment. Even though a war is happening, there still is a basic sense of human decency, basic respect who are shown to people, even across enemy lines, because there's a value here of human life. What we mean is captured prisoners of war, wounded soldiers should not be tortured, should not be abused. We ought to treat the enemy's soldiers the same way we would want our soldiers to be treated if they were captured. So there's a basic con compassion for human beings off of the battlefield. And then lastly, lastly, good faith. Good faith. Again, this is a moral component that goes into the discussion of just wars. It's called good faith. What does this mean? It means no matter how long the war goes on, if it's a matter of days, sometimes wars are over in days, Maybe it's weeks or months. Sometimes wars stretch to years. But however long it might be, there should always be a diplomatic desire 
on the part of both countries to want this thing to end. There ought to be at least a genuine desire, a good faith desire, that restoration would happen between the two warring nations, that peace would be restored. So, tanks can be rolling and planes can be flying, but both sides are still genuinely attempting to find resolution. Resolution to the conflict and so that the relationship might be restored. So family, those are the four moral considerations that fall under this category about a justified war. But as I've even mentioned those family, under this final point, that fourth point I mentioned about relationships being restored and the reconciliation that happens, you know, right here in this moment, I, I would be remiss. I would be remiss if I didn't take a moment here and remind all of us here this morning the great lengths that God the Father went to to restore a relationship with sinful human beings like us. Yes, friends, yes, even in a message about war, we need to stop and we need to be reminded of the conflict and the distance and the enmity that exists between a holy God and sinful people. Because of our sin and because of our rebellion, Scripture says every human being, every human being, including you and me, we were apart from God. We were separated from God. There was war in our soul. There was contempt for this God. Yet in His great love for us, God sent His Son Jesus to bridge the gap Jesus came to pay the price for our sins upon the cross so that that conflict between us would be removed, so that it would be forever restored in our relationship with God, that once again we would be brought back, reconciled to our Heavenly Father. You know, maybe you're here today and you're listening to this message and you're not a Christian. Friend, I want you to know the greatest news on planet Earth today is not human beings, human governments, talking about denuclearization or minimizing their arsenals. That is not the best news. No, the greatest news of all, friend, is the news of the gospel. The news that Jesus Christ came down from heaven, lived on this planet, and went to the cross to take our sins, so that all those who believe upon Christ might be forgiven of their sins and forever restored back in fellowship with the Father. The Bible says even while we were hating God, even while we were at war with God, God was the one who stepped forward to accomplish reconciliation through Jesus. And Scripture says when we bow the knee to Jesus, when we accept Jesus' work by faith, the Bible says the conflict is over and we have peace with God. Romans 5 says, Therefore, we've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, let me encourage you, friend. Throw down your weapons. Throw down your weapons. Call off the war in your heart. Surrender yourself to the goodness and the grace of God. Friend, God loves you. He loves you. And He promises to forgive you. He promises to redeem you. He promises to transform you from the inside out if you will invite His Son Jesus to be the Lord and the leader of your life. Friend, if you've never done that, I pray that today, 
I pray today will be the day that you believe on Jesus as Savior so that your war will finally be over and you will be reconciled to your Heavenly Father. Well, family, as we draw this message to a close, I hope that you will leave here today, Christians. I want you to leave today feeling helped, and I want you to leave today feeling encouraged, knowing that we have so many timeless truths, so many great biblical principles in the Word of God on this very sensitive subject of war. Think about it with me. From the day that Cain picked up a rock and used it against his brother Abel, this broken planet has had sinful human beings coming into deadly conflict with one another. And you know it, down through the ages, the rocks were traded in for spears and swords, and eventually swords and spears were replaced by machine guns and tanks. The long history of humanity has shown us wars are never a pleasant thing. But as we've learned today from the Word of God, not all wars are wrong. Sometimes wars are necessary for governments to push back against evil and injustice, punish evildoers, protect those who are good, protect things that are good, and people who are innocent. Praise God, even when wars become necessary, we can be so thankful that we have the Bible. We have the Christian worldview that helps to establish those basic guidelines, those simple standards of morality in order that wars would be a little less horrific than they could be. So family, as you depart for a brand new week, take hope today. Take hope that even though this present world is marked by wars and rumors of wars, and yes, even tweets of war, there is a day coming soon when King Jesus will return with his full and final victory. In that glorious day, Jesus will establish his kingdom where conflict and sin and death and war will be forever banished from this earth. Oh, what a wonderful day that will be when the Prince of Peace will sit upon his throne and his everlasting Peace will reign supreme. Thanks for listening. This preaching for a change broadcast has been brought to you by the Grace Baptist Church of Hazleton, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at mygracebaptist.church. If you enjoyed this broadcast, then share it with a friend on your favorite social media network. And be sure to join us next time for more enlightening and encouraging biblical exposition here on Preaching for a Change.